session with Dr. Farid Hulak. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulak, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. So uh, I'll be doing the book of the week today because on Monday night's show, I was very happy to be joined by psychologist Dr. Jennifer Galvin, and we discussed toxic positivity. Really enjoyed that discussion. If you missed it, I'll upload it. Uh, to the podcast later today so you can check that out so because of that we'll discuss the book of the week for last week today and it was really fascinating book called being you by anil seth being you a new science of consciousness and uh, if you've seen the books of the week you have noticed that this theme or topic of consciousness has come up fairly often i think it's a very fascinating topic to look at try to understand and even what we're talking about oftentimes can be complicated and and parts of the book Anil Seth does get into that he is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the university University of Sussex in in uh, England and so um, this was a really interesting book it definitely has a similar theme Uh, you maybe have heard me talk about the brain as a predicting machine something that in recent years i've come across and seen more and more uh, but it definitely follows that type of theme or that concept that our brain is not a thinking machine as we often like to pun intended i guess think about it or we thought it was it's not just this thinking machine and it's not just an information gathering machine or an information processor but it's much more of a predicting machine and i'll get into that Um, so to begin with when you discuss consciousness as is the case if you're discussing any topic it's important to define what you are talking about so you can discuss it and consciousness is a very difficult one because it can be defined in lots of ways and that itself can make it difficult to study and then also to discuss because we might have two people saying consciousness and then trying to describe it or discuss it in a way or debate about it but they might be using different definitions so in a way talking about two different things but here early in the book we see uh, Anil Seth says the definition of consciousness he puts it one way as any kind of subjective experience whatsoever and he says that can seem very simple and even trivial but that can be a good thing it could be a good starting point so essentially any kind of subjective experience anything that it's like to be you or any being um, and to have an experience or to feel something these would all fall under the realm of consciousness and and in the book he goes through different aspects of um, consciousness, which I will discuss later. And so when we're also looking at consciousness, one of the things that often will come up is um, 
the hard problem of consciousness. Maybe you've heard this concept before, but the hard problem of consciousness was introduced by the Australian philosopher David Chalmers uh, in the early 90s, and it's become a core issue when people are talking about consciousness. And so essentially this hard problem of consciousness is how do we essentially explain the why? So why is there something like to experience, uh, as he puts it himself, David Chalmers, the quality of deep blue or the sensation of middle C, uh, like the musical note. So even though we can try to explain it in a way, but why should that even exist at all? As he concludes in this uh, paragraph here, David Chalmers says, it seems objectively unreasonable that it should, and yet it does. And so this hard problem... uh, I think it's an interesting one in a sense from a philosophical standpoint, but for me it's hard to even understand how could something explain this type of a phenomenological um, experience, this phenomenological experience of feeling something, to say this is why it feels this way. I don't know if we can ever really answer it completely, and Anil Seth challenges the hard problem or presents his own what he calls the real problem which i'll explain that might be more something we can address and might even change the ways we think of this hard problem of consciousness but you'll see this very often in any conversation discussion about consciousness the hard problem and so the hard problem on the other hand uh comes with it the so-called easy problem or really it's easy problems which is trying to Uh, explain different parts of the brain or systems of perception, for example, that give rise to what we um, experience. So, and this is in some ways paraphrasing for the book here from Anil Seth explaining it. So the easy problem, for example, if someone says this part of the brain processes language and this is how these neurons work here and what it's connected to, this can help us understand kind of in a way the how of things or how they work. It doesn't say anything about the experience of those things, but it will help give us an understanding of the how. And so that's the so-called easy problem um, of consciousness. Now, as I mentioned, uh, he comes up with himself or he describes what he describes as the real problem. And so for him, the real problem of consciousness and the one that he tries to uh, pay more attention to or address is that we're trying to look at consciousness and say, can we explain, predict, and control the phenomenological properties of conscious experience. So basically, um, and he says this is what any science does. So if we look at physics or any other field of, of study and science, they're trying to explain, predict, and control. So can we explain why these subjective experiences occur? And because of that, can we also intervene in some ways that could help us predict what's going to happen if this happens or that happens and also control what happens? So in this sense, it's a what he considers a real problem compared to the hard problem, because uh, as he says himself, when we think of something like the universe, they'll talk about the Big Bang and how that might have happened and try to explain what has happened, but they don't have to explain why 
there is a universe in the first place. So we don't ask them, well, why is there a universe and not a universe? Some philosophers will discuss those things too, and even religious texts or religious discussions might include these kinds of things and could bring up um, concepts of is there a creator or not. But we don't ask physicists that they have to explain why is there a universe in the first place in order to study it. And so similarly, he's saying, well, why do we need to uh, explain why there is consciousness uh, in order to study it. So he prefers this real problem, and also this real problem can be much more easily studied or looked at, and progress can be made in the real problem um, in order to help explain, predict, and control uh, consciousness. So uh, I think that was interesting that I hadn't heard that distinction or this concept of the real problem before. Uh, but I thought he, he did an interesting job of presenting that. And so then going forward, the book is in some ways divided into three different sections. Uh, the first section looks at levels of consciousness. And so levels of consciousness doesn't necessarily mean from um, some animals compared to higher level animals or humans we consider and often in a uh, misleading way we might assume our consciousness is the pinnacle or the best type of consciousness something i'll get into later but level of consciousness in some ways we can also think of things like level of awareness so for example um when you consider someone being in a coma we would consider that a low level of awareness so in, when it comes to consciousness they're low level of consciousness compared to being completely awake as let's say I am right now. Hopefully I'm very conscious. So we can look at different levels of consciousness and try to understand that. Now, some people have also looked at or they thought, well, maybe we can find one part of the brain that is consciousness, the seat of consciousness. And it doesn't seem that that is a promising venture. Uh, if we look at using Anil Seth's own definition of a subjective experience, it might not necessarily be that there is this one part of the brain that's going to explain that or create that, but that it's really a whole system of things that creates this type of consciousness that we are describing. But so when we look at levels of consciousness, we can try to come up with different degrees of understanding how it is um, that people have these different levels. And I was very interested that there are some new or newer, it was newer to me especially, techniques to try to measure levels of consciousness. And there have been a few different ways of doing that. And so he actually shares the analogy of trying to understand consciousness and trying to understand something like temperature, which actually he thinks is not a, a good analogy in the sense that it doesn't correlate so well but nonetheless that before they could really even understand temperature people had to figure out how to measure it or it was happening at the same time to a certain extent and so how do you create a thermo thermometer when you to measure temperature when you don't know exactly what it is or what do you measure it against so he talks briefly about that history of for example developing a thermometer to measure temperature and he shares that some people have thought of consciousness in the same way that it is something that can be very low and very high kind of on one scale low temperature high temperature we can have low consciousness high consciousness but he actually says a better analogy is trying to understand life and that might seem simple, but how do we understand what is something living versus not? 
So most of us would think a rock is not living, but a frog is. Uh, but then there also are these boundaries, things like viruses, where is it alive or not? How do you define that and describe that? And so he, he says that consciousness might have a better connection or a better analogy of understanding life, that it's not just this one single scale that goes from less to more, uh, but that it's much more complex and dynamic than that. And he says also that analogy does not hold in all instances, but it might be a better conceptual way of looking at things. So nonetheless, so we can have different levels of consciousness, and there's these ways that different scientists have come up with to try to measure. For example, let's say if someone is unresponsive, how do we know if they are still conscious or not? So to speak, are the lights still on? Are they experiencing something, but maybe they can't respond to you or show some type of um, a reaction to you for you to know? So you talk to them and they don't respond, and we say, well, they're unresponsive. But just because they can't create a response does not mean that no one is there experiencing something. And so they've done these fascinating studies where because they can determine, for example, when the brain is thinking about one thing versus another. I think it was playing tennis versus walking around in their house or something like that. If you have the brain hooked up to an fMRI or different machinery that can measure the brain activity, we can determine when someone is, for example, thinking about playing tennis versus thinking about walking around their home. And so there are times with people who are unresponsive, able to ask them to do one or one or the other of those things, and they could do it. And they could tell that now they were, let's say, thinking about playing tennis, or now they were thinking about um, walking around in their home. And we could use that, albeit a very long way of communicating, to actually allow the person to express something. So, for example, you could say, if you want to say yes, think about playing tennis. If you want to say no, think about walking around your home. And then you ask them a question and they would be able to think about that thing that, that either to convey yes or no. If you're measuring their brain, you'd be able to pick up on that and then determine if they are saying yes or no and then respond to that request or what they want, which I thought was pretty, pretty amazing stuff. Um, and just shows that, of course, we think of language as communication, and it is definitely in the easiest and most direct way that we can do it. But there's so many ways that we can communicate and express something. And now even in this way, essentially delving into someone's brain or measuring the activity can give us an idea of what they think or what they want to tell us in some way. I thought that was really, really, really interesting um, research that I was not aware of, but that that's quite amazing. So we can look at the level of consciousness, as I was saying, and there's different measures that are coming out of looking at brain activity to try to determine different levels of, of consciousness, which it's still in a, you know, kind of a nascent form it's still being developed but it's pretty fascinating something i was not also aware of um, as well now I, I do want to continue the discussion i thought it was quite fascinating i've only really got into the first section of it so after the break i'll continue talking about being you by anil seth we'll be right back welcome back continuing the discussion on the book being you by anil seth uh, a very fascinating book. I highly recommend it. In the U.S., it just came out about a week or two ago, um, but I hope you'll check it out. So as I was saying, he splits the book up in these different sections. So the first part is about looking at conscious level, everything from thinking of being in a coma or having brain death 
to being very awake and alert. Then there is the content of consciousness. So are the things that we are conscious of, which includes things like the senses that we think of. We think of them as five, but really there are more, but things like what we see and smell and feel physically, and then also includes things like our emotions and our moods and thoughts and all those things that are the contents of our consciousness. And here's where this concept of the brain as a predicting machine becomes much more clear or can be talked about. So we tend to think of, or there's a way of looking at perception. Sometimes we'll say there is bottom up and top down processes that are going down, going on. So bottom up means there's something out there right now. I'm looking at this red table in front of me here, and there's this red table there, and I'm taking in the perception of this real thing there. And then my brain processes that, and there's different parts of the brain to do that, so that I get this image of the thing that is out there. So that's bottom up. And we tend to think intuitively that that is what perception is. That's what vision is. I look out into the world, or the world is out there, and then it comes into me through my senses, and then I see the world based on what my brain does with that information. But there's also top-down perception, meaning that the brain itself, based on things it knows, in this sense, we're also talking about the predictions, that's going to affect what we perceive or the experience that we have. Now, it's interesting because I remember when I was in undergrad at UCLA, taking a class called, I think it was called Sensation and Perception. And I remember a chart that was put up in one of the first classes, maybe even the first class showing that this is how we can think about perception. There's bottom up and top down. And from what I recall, the professor made it this sense that it's very much bottom up and was saying, oh, there are some top down, but it seemed very minimal. It was just kind of like there are some top down and there are some things we're aware of, but it was much more the um, background to kind of think of a, what might be involved in visual understanding of perception, but it was more in the background, the top down. And it seemed like, well, it's really just a bottom up experience. Something's out there. We take it in through our senses and the sensory organs and receptors and all that. And then we have an experience of what's out there. So I remember, and I was thinking about that, how much the top down seemed like a, oh, you know, it's cool that there might be some top down or it might have some effect. And this was just you know, in, when you think of the grand scale of understanding things in human history, maybe it was 15 years ago, something like that. Uh, but so much has changed. And now when I think about perception, I recognize or I'm becoming much more aware reading books like this one and recent ones I've read about how much more of it is top down. So really what we experience is or constantly our brain is making predictions about what it's going to encounter or experience. And so it's not just that you're seeing the outside world, your brain already has a prediction of, of what it is seeing. And this can be, again, counterintuitive to what we experience in our moment-to-moment -moment experience, but it does seem to make sense when we understand the brain and we look at different studies more clearly. And he shows um, there are some visual uh, illusions or exercises, and a few of them even he has in the book that are quite 
interesting. For example, one picture, there's this image of what looks like a blob of black and white types of lines, and you can't really make much of the image when you look at it. You're like, okay, it's just some uh, image or maybe like some kind of abstract art. But then when you see the picture in more detail, uh, and a few pages later, he has that image where you actually can see it's a woman kissing her horse. Then when you go back to that image, now you see the woman kissing the horse in that same image that before I only saw blobs of of black and white. And what was interesting for me today when I was looking at the book to get ready for the show is I'd seen this image uh, maybe four or five days ago when I was on that part of the book. And then when I looked at it, it was faint. I could actually see the woman kind of kissing the horse. That thing was visible. But when I went and saw the image again and came back, it was much more clear. So um, that predictive part of my brain or the expectation was there a bit, but not that strong. And so that was interesting for me to see that that difference from the first time where I had no idea what the picture was to the second time where I could kind of see it. Um, And then when you go back uh, and look at it, Again, you see it quite clearly, and it's impossible to unsee it. Now, right now, I actually have the image in front of me. I completely see the horse and the lady, and it's very, very clear. It's not um, vague at all. And so we can't unsee that, so we don't even realize the predictions that we're making. Now, when I look at it, I think, well, obviously, that's what it is. Um, But it definitely is more complicated than that. Or another example of this, uh, this wasn't discussed in the book, but has a similar theme. Um, People will think if I, you know, well, I want you to tap a song just by tapping it. So no notes. And do you think people would be able to know what it is? And so people who are doing the tapping, they think, of course, people will be able to recognize it. So I don't know if the microphone picks up like these taps, but can you hear that? Okay, so let's say I'm tapping something um, like that. And I think, oh, it's so obvious what that song is. So I'll do something right now, like. And so you're probably like, okay, I have no idea what that was, but that was Jingle Bells. So it was like, da, 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 And as I did it in my head, it sounded so obvious. Like, okay, how can you not hear Jingle Bells when I'm tapping those notes? And it's funny, even as I was doing it, I'm like, oh, is it obvious? Maybe I picked too obvious of a song, which might illustrate that point. But it seemed very much like, of course you can tell what it is. And so because in my head, I know what's happening and I have this experience sometimes they call this the curse of knowledge because I know this is happening and that this is the song I hear it so vividly like oh that's so obviously jingle bells but usually the person hearing it has no idea a very very small percentage of people can recognize the the songs I think oftentimes they've done the um, Star Spangled Banner the national anthem of the United States they've used that and people think oh this is so obvious that people know what this is. So we can see that what we think is happening is just taking in information is much more about our uh, brain making predictions to constantly try to uh, represent what's happening out there. And then it does take in some information from the senses, of course, but that's really more of what we call a prediction error to try to correct the errors that might be there in the prediction to match more what might be out there. And also that's another part that could be hard for us. And this has philosophical implications or discussions around it of, do we experience a reality? 
is there a reality out there that we're experiencing that we for sure could see? Of course, how do you even determine that? But it does seem much more that what we consider to be a reality is not something so clearly there, but it's our perception of something that is out there. And one of the ways we can think about this is like colors and light. So we see colors. I right now I'm looking around and I see types of light, but we know because we can now measure it, there's types of colors and light that the human eye and our human processing, uh, perceptual processing systems cannot see and experience. Ultraviolet, light, x-rays, and things like that. We can't see them, but they do exist. And so that tells us that although we think we're seeing some reality, we're seeing, as he puts it in the book, less than what's out there and also in some ways more than what's out there because we see it in a certain way that's interpreted, but we're also missing a lot of of what is out there, which I found quite uh, interesting to think of it in that way. So it it really is counterintuitive because our experience every day is, oh, I'm seeing this world. I'm experiencing the world. And I am experiencing something, but does that mean that's the world that is out there? Well, that's the part that's much more complicated. You know, or there's also visual illusions. Um, As I mentioned in the book, I think one is called Adelson's Checkerboard. And so it shows how you look at these two squares and you think A and B, and one of them, A, looks much darker than B because it appears that B is in the shadow of this big cylinder. And so what we don't realize is automatically our brain is doing some discounting and adjusting of the darkness of B because it knows that when uh, something is in the shadow of something else, it's going to look darker. And right now I'm looking at it and it's, it's, it's really fascinating because it does look like A is much darker than B, but it's because my brain is automatically making that discounting of the darkness of B because it's in a shadow. And so I see it this way and it's very hard to shake that. And so we always have to be aware, and this is part of when we think of science and the scientific method, that just because something seems a certain way doesn't mean that it actually is. And in that way we try to question our own experience and our own subjective experience and try to become closer to objective. We can't be purely objective because we know that we're still doing the measuring and the studying and all that, but become more objective. And sometimes we can see these types of discrepancies of what we can recognize is out there and what we experience within ourselves. So um, to me, that was quite fascinating, this, this expression of uh, of our perceptual experiences as much more predictive than as just taking in what's out there. And that's something that in some recent books you've probably heard me discuss, including uh, a book I really enjoyed, uh, Mark Solms's book, The Hidden Spring. There was definitely some connections that were there, and even Friston's Free Energy Principle was discussed. And also, uh, Anil Seth talks about how confusing and complicated that can be. And when I read it in uh, Mark Solms's book, I remember feeling the same thing. And he said it too, that it's pretty mathematically complex and a bit hard to understand. And there was discussion of things called, I think, Markov blankets and things that I, you know, are very, very complicated, but uh, that can help us understand even life and what has given rise to life, but also relates to things like uh, consciousness. And if you recall in that book, feelings were um, really this essential part of consciousness or understanding what consciousness is. And there was some of that, I felt that here in, (laughs) felt in Anil Seth's book about how um, feeling is really the subjective experience, which includes feelings as a 
really one of the main components of our conscious experience. And so when we also think about the predicting brain, that means that it is constantly updating. And in this way, you know, without realizing it, our brains are like these statisticians and it doesn't necessarily have these types of formulas you might learn in a statistics class, but it is at some way trying to make sense of the world and making predictions. And so exactly how the mathematics of that work, I guess it's hard to explain or I don't really understand, but we can think that if you saw something eight times one way and two times another way, well, it's more likely to think that it's going to experience that thing you saw eight times, but also its confidence might be less. And so it tends to have this type of experience and we uh, can see that the mathematics of uh, Bayes um, comes into play here and Bayesian inferences and predictions come into play also a bit complicated and something that I can't explain well my brother Parham actually um, always talks about Bayesian updating and Bayesian uh, inferences and things like that um, he can probably explain that much better than I can but the brain essentially is using some type of statistics in a way not statistics the ways we, we think about it but it has to do that to predict what it's going to um, experience next so uh, the book does a great job of outlining some of these different features of what the brain kind of gets right and wrong which itself is subjective, uh, which I thought was quite fascinating. And what I want to get into in the next segment, um, this book, as I mentioned, was quite fascinating. And merely, I think in some ways, one of the main arguments of the book, or even if we look at the title of the book, Being You, is thinking about our sense of self, which for a lot of people, that's often what we think of as consciousness, the sense of being me is what it means to be conscious or what I take as my consciousness and conscious experience and that's something that we tend to think of as a very stable thing that exists very much in a real way and uh, is undeniable and is constant and unchanging but he, he does a very I thought a very fascinating job of looking at even the sense of self and thinking of it in the context of what if that also is a type of perception it's a sense of self that phrase actually might uh, belie that a little bit, that it might be itself a perception. And because of that, it might have similar properties to other perceptions that we have. So after the break, I'll continue a bit on that and finishing up the discussion on the book, Being You by Anil Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So wrapping up the discussion on the book, Being You, a new con new science of consciousness by Anil Seth, and as I mentioned before the break, I uh, want to talk about our sense of self, something that we might think of as being very different from things like vision or hearing, and perceptions like that. But also, this can be considered another type of perception that he describes here. Now, before getting into this a part of the discussion, when we even consider our perceptions, we tend to think of ourselves seeing something real out there and as I mentioned that this does not seem to really hold up to our real understanding of what the brain is doing and and what we are experiencing and actually he uses this term which others have used as well of a controlled hallucination which can seem strange when we think of hallucination we think of something that is out of touch with reality. That's even how it's usually explained. A hallucination or a delusion, which are aspects of psychosis, are when we experience something, either we have 
perceptual experiences, which are hallucination, or we have thoughts that are out of touch with reality. But either way, there is the sense that it's out of touch with reality. And because of that, we consider it pathological and we diagnose it as psychosis and as something that is out of touch with reality. But really, we can recognize this, that the sense that we have a reality out there and that we're perceiving it directly and accurately is a bit of an exaggeration. And so we can consider all of our perceptions as a hallucination. So in some ways, really what differentiates the hallucinations we are all having all the time with the ones that we diagnose as a hallucination is really that the first ones are things we share. So if we all look at something and say that's a chair, we say, well, that's reality. But then if there are some people who see it as something else or experience something else, or if they hear a voice we don't hear, well, they are having an, a hallucination in that type of sense. So uh, it, it can be strange, again, to think of that, that our experiences are essentially hallucinations in the sense that we are creating them to some degree, but that's the way he, he describes it throughout the book. And so then we can look at this sense of self, which feels very stable, feels so real, as another form of perception. I have a sense of myself. I have a sense of existing. I have a sense of a stability of myself that I am the same person I was five years ago. And what does that even mean? We know that our cells are constantly changing. And so even the cells that make up me today are different from the ones that made up me however long ago. I don't know exactly how long it takes for those things to change, but those things are changing and that we do change in a variety of ways, but there is this sense of a stability of self and, and related to that, a stability of our sense of others. And I've discussed this in recent shows, whether it comes from certain books that have described the topic or just in general thinking about this concept of our sense of self being a bit of a exaggeration and the significance of ourself. Sometimes we've heard of people say things like our ego and things of that nature. Uh, and I think there's something to that, that there's a way that we perceive the world ourselves as so separate from one another, which could have some survival benefits in some ways, but also, again, might be a type of a hallucination to the extent that it's not completely real. Now, I know you might be thinking I'm having the more general sense of the word hallucination when I say something like that, but I think it's something very fascinating. It does make a lot of sense. And speaking of hallucinations and hallucinogenic drugs, when we think of psychedelic drugs, when people have experiences um, on LSD, um, DMT, those types of psychedelic drugs, ma magic mushrooms, they can have an experience that their sense of self dissolves or there's a dissolution of the self and they tend to not see themselves as so separate from the world and they can often experience this interconnectivity which can be quite fascinating and now you would think the dissolution of yourself would be very scary or might be um, uncomfortable or painful or something we don't like because we would want to have this sense of self but actually most people that experience it describe it as feeling very beautiful and feeling very connected to the world in a way that feels good so it could be that we have this illusion of the sense of self at, in a way that helps us be more likely to survive but it doesn't make us happier necessarily it doesn't make us feel good i think that's something interesting to ponder there's often things that we have in our experiences as living beings, as human beings, that 
don't necessarily make us happier or feel better, but might make it more likely that we survive. Pain can also be another one or the way we experience pain. Because, yes, it actually is very helpful to have pain, to know that something is hurting you and could be damaging you, to either stop that or to tend to whatever it is that's hurting. But we can also know that we probably experience pain as stronger than the actual threat. This is something I find interesting about emotions as well. I'm very big on feel your feelings, be in touch with them, try to understand them. But it can be important to recognize that our our feelings are often... Uh, exaggerated. I think Randolph Ness in his book uh, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings described this topic and used the analogy I really like of the smoke alarm. That usually when your smoke alarm goes off in your house, you don't think there's an actual fire. You assume that it's, uh, you know, either the alarm is, the smoke alarm is malfunctioning or you're burning some toast or something is getting a little bit of smoke there, but you don't think there's an actual fire that you need to be afraid of. And so he was saying often our feelings are the same way. So you have this feeling of anxiety, something bad is going to happen, but usually it doesn't mean you're in actual danger or that something bad is actually going to happen. So I think that's interesting. So this sense of self, it might lead to our existence and our experience not being as good because we can feel separated and isolated, which can be one of our existential crises that we experience. But feeling that separation and isolation might not actually be good in how we feel, but it could make it more likely that we survive. Because if we think of our selfhood as so important, and we can feel this where people are, I want to make sure I survive, or it's so important, I do this, and this feeling that I am so important, it can make sense that I am more likely to make sure I survive and pass on my genes. Whereas if I had, uh, you know, we had other ancestors who are less concerned with themselves surviving, now this could bring up a whole host of discussions about altruism and altruism being passed on. Um, which is itself a very fascinating field or topic of discussion. But here, just thinking of it in this sense of self and surviving yourself, if you didn't care that much about yourself surviving, um, all living beings have some of this, but the degree that you had this can affect how likely you would be to survive and then pass on your genes. So we can understand that there was this um, evolutionary drive to value ourselves even more or to experience the separateness even more to make sure I really care about making uh, making sure I survive. So, uh, as is discussed in the book, the self itself is a perception and one that we are essentially creating in some way. So I thought that was fascinating. And this feels very counterintuitive, but some uh, studies can give you some insights or some quirks that might make you realize this stability of your sense of self might not be as concrete as you might think. So there's something called, uh, I think it's the rubber hand experiment. I don't know if it's always titled that. But essentially what they do is they'll put up something like a cardboard uh, divider. And so you can't see, let's say, your right hand. And then they'll bring a rubber hand in front of you that is positioned kind of like how your hand would be. And they stroke both your hand and the rubber hand with a paintbrush in the same way. So imagine you can't see your hand, but what you're feeling on your hand is the same thing that you're seeing being done to this other rubber hand, okay? And over time, there's this kind of synchronization of that where 
you can almost start to connect with this rubber hand as if it is your own. And so then they might start doing something different to that rubber hand and you might feel it. Or they might take a, um, you know, a knife or a needle and make it like they're about to stab that rubber hand. And you can have this intense reaction as if it is your own hand that is going to be uh, hurt. And now not everyone is as susceptible to this as others. And that could bring up some personal characteristics that might lead to these differences. But we can see that this sense of self is not so clear. And actually, I didn't think about this, but um, it, it could be something that's also related to empathy. Because if I can see myself in others, in the sense the rubber hand, but in some ways it can show this ability to lose my own feeling and feel the feelings of someone else, maybe there's something there. So I didn't think about that till I'm talking about it at this moment, but um, maybe an interesting aspect of of the personality characteristics that might differentiate who is more susceptible to these rubber hand type of experiments and phenomenons. But anyway, um, they're also using virtual reality to do this too, which can be really cool because it can create even more uh, vivid and comprehensive types of experiences where you wear a headset. And so now imagine two people are looking at each other, but they've flipped the... um, the inputs. So now you're seeing what the other person is seeing. So you might be actually seeing yourself as that person is seeing you and vice versa. And so this can create some interesting experiences that people have. But there are these types of studies that are creating these scenarios. And there are different things we experience in life where people don't really have that stability of that sense of self or create some uh, ambiguity in certain things. And there are certain um, disorders that people can have experiences like, for example, I forget the name of it, but where people have an experience that their limb, let's say they think their leg is not their leg, that they feel like somehow it's someone else's leg. So this sense of the selfhood that this is part of me is not there, even to the point where some people amputate that leg themselves. Imagine, it sounds a little bit bizarre, but if you thought there was uh, an actual foreign body attached to you, you probably would want to cut it off. Let's say if you saw a bug that a mosquito is sucking blood out of your arm, you might slap the mosquito or get rid of it because you think it's this foreign object attacking you. So people could have that feeling. So often, as is the case, when we see some aspect of the typical human experience break down, it could give us more insights into actually what is going on in those typical experiences. So the way he explained it in this book, the perception of the sense of self and really looking at it as a perception like any other perception that is more of a prediction um, machine happening rather than something real, to me was quite fascinating. So uh, if you read the book, I'm interested to see what you think about that. Now, in the the third section, he gets into some other topics, including things like looking at, well, who or what is conscious as far as also looking at the animal kingdom. And so I thought that was an interesting discussion. And if we think of anything that has a subjective experience as being conscious, as I mentioned, he uh, gives that type of a definition early in the book. Well, most of us would agree that virtually all animals are conscious. And now here we also get into some important distinctions or uh, concepts we have to be aware of how we even measure or think about consciousness. And so we can do two things. One is anthropomorphism, which is when we see things of being human in other animals or even inanimate objects. Like we can, for example, 
um, look at a light switch or the light socket I'm looking at right now and it looks like a face to me or we see the actions of an animal and we put human type of motivations onto it. And another is anthrocentrism. I don't know if I'm saying that right or anthropocentric uh, views or anthropocentrism, which is where we think of as human experience as the best. And really we can think of human exceptionalism as one aspect of this anthropocentric mindset that we can have that, well, human consciousness is the pinnacle and the top of consciousness. So we measure all other animals or beings compared to human consciousness because that's the best. And this is really a uh, inaccurate way, or it's going to be a limiting way of really trying to understand what is out there because there can be animals and beings that have experiences that we can't quite understand even might be more than what we can understand. I remember when I was reading the book, The Genius of Birds, seeing that birds can do certain things that we can't do. And so it can be good to recognize that, that although we think of ourselves as having this pinnacle of achievement of all sorts of things, that actually there are ways that we are going to be weaker, or that at least it's different, we can say at the least, um, with the experiences of other beings. And so I thought that was something uh, important and interesting how he made those types of distinctions as we try to understand consciousness in other beings. And of course, this can impact how we decide to treat them. I think we oftentimes try not to think about these things. And it's another way of, first of all, just um, doing what we want to do, but using that anthropocentrism to think, well, we're better than these animals, so their experiences don't really matter. And so if we kill them or hurt them, they don't feel anything like we do or they don't go through anything. And I think that's a very self-serving type of a, a way of dealing with things or a perspective to think about animals in that way. And he clearly uh, makes it that he sees many animals from mammals to other beings. Uh, interestingly, he shares some very fascinating things about octopus and octopuses he was um, in, able to study or be in the, the presence of people that were studying them that quite frankly show that they have some types of intelligence that we definitely don't have that also imply the consciousness. And as I say that, I should make it clear, he makes a distinction that we sometimes think of intelligence and consciousness as the same thing, but they are not. It's not that you have to be so intelligent to be conscious. Of course, how you measure intelligence is very important and uh, that consciousness means intelligence either. So um, it doesn't have to be that it's it's a one-to-one -one type of a correlation. There can be distinctions there. So a uh, very fascinating book looking at different components of trying to understand consciousness. It definitely fit in line with lots of things I've read recently about the brain as a predicting machine, while also sharing different perspectives on uh, on some aspects of it that I hadn't seen before or hadn't seen explained in that way. So for me, it was a really, really interesting book. Uh, and actually soon I'll be doing another book on consciousness I just received by Antonio Damasio, uh, who just came out yesterday. So this theme of consciousness is one I find very, very fascinating as we try to understand ourselves, our experience, and also our place in the world and the rest of the world around us. So I highly, highly recommend this book in that series of trying to understand consciousness better to the best of our abilities at this time. Again, that is Being You, A New Science of Consciousness by Anil Seth. Let's go to a commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back.
back, studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller now. Radio Hamro, you're on the air. Hello, doctor. Yes, hi, thanks for calling. Uh, hi, thank you so much for taking my call, Dr. Ferry. Um, I have a question regarding uh, my 23-year-old son, mm-hmm. um, and I'm hoping to get some advice uh, from you. Um, he lives currently, he lives with me, and um, it's been about two years that uh, me and his dad are separated from each other for the second time. So basically, our son, he is the only child that we have, and um, basically he didn't have a very simple life. Um, so what um, um, I'm, I'm letting you know about the situation that mm-hmm. uh, like he has now, and then um, maybe you can let me know, or if you have any questions, I, I would be happily uh, answer that. Um, he uh, when he graduated from high school before graduating from high school when he was like uh, about 16 and a half um his dad and himself didn't have a good relationship like basically it was really power struggle at home uh, all the time and it made me really nervous at the time i didn't even know that I had myself anxiety and I was really worried always when I left the two of them together because every little thing was an excuse for his dad to make his life miserable. Um, it was at the point that uh, basically it was kind of dangerous. I felt that it's not safe for us to live at the, at home. I went to see a counselor and uh, this person told me that um, the best thing is just to leave home without even telling him. That's what we did. Um, so uh, we left home one day, organized this, everything beforehand, uh, renting a place uh, for our own and um, left home. So, so that was... Me, uh, so was his father... I'm assuming there's violence. Was it just with your son, or was it also with you? Yes. No, but not with me. Just not with him. With me. Um, his dad was kind of, um, from the very start, I felt that he was um, very jealous towards his son. So he saw him something that came between us and wouldn't leave. Hmm. Like at a very younger age he kept telling me that he has to leave home he has to leave home why is he staying still here hmm. okay he um, it, I, I can't even describe I, uh, I couldn't understand it like from the moment that he came home our son was trying to just hide himself so that he's not um, he, he, he won't even see him so that it, it can it brings up conflict and um, his dad had very uh, anger anger issues and it made really hard and scary for us at times um, that was the reason we left home mm. and um, 
then uh, my son had his grade 12 in in the high school it, it was okay we li- we lived together and his dad in the at the time was very angry eventually he got used to the idea and uh, slowly by slowly he came to visit us and um after our son graduated his uh, high school, he had good marks. He was accepted to good, very good universities and decided to choose one that it was quite far from us. He and we, as like, we were very happy for him and his dad also participated. Uh, and Well, let me ask you, when we, you, so you said you left the yeah. house kind of like secretive, like, you know, middle... Uh, all of a sudden, but then his father stayed in his life, or you maintained communication. What, the, yes, what happened? Then, there? then he wanted to to be staying in his life, okay. in our life. So he came came to our apartment often, visit him, and a few times they went outside together. That never happened before, and uh, it it seems that everything is looking better. We were still separated, and when our son left to the other city, then um, we were still separated. Um, The the issue started when our son was uh, in the other city and couldn't get along with, um, couldn't uh, find any friends. Basically, just going to university, came back to dorm. At the time, I thought dorm is a better idea because he will find friends and um, he won't be by himself instead of renting somewhere for him. Uh, But that didn't quite work out because um, he was telling us that it's just about... um, alcohol party and this kind of stuff and he wasn't into any of that um, so basically when in the first semester it was kind of okay he passed and uh, he came home um, for like for new year and then after a week or two when he wanted to leave he was kind of crying and he said he doesn't want to go Um I didn't know that it was that bad. So when he went there after a month or so, he started not going to his classes and just basically all the, the time sleeping. He went through, a, I think, very bad depression at the time, and um, he didn't even see anyone. He didn't take a shower. He didn't do anything. I offered, I wanted to go back to um to see him and bring him home or do something and he very very he was very adamant that I shouldn't and he doesn't want me there and it it's going to be okay uh, by the time i find out it was i think a bit too late because he missed classes and i was in a situation in the apartment that i rented that the owner wanted to um sell the house, sell the apartment. So I basically was had, having issues myself. Um, okay. Now let me, um, you know, I, so let me, let's fast forward a, a bit because I mean, I'm sure there's, these things are important, but I want us to get a, a handle of what's going on now and then maybe I'll ask you to go back. So what's happening now? Yeah. 
and, and then we can go back mm-hmm. a bit and, and see where where else we can connect some of the dots. But what's happening now that you are are worried about? So it seems like he was going through a pretty bad depression then. I'm sure you'll have to tell me a bit of what yeah. happened after that. But tell me about what's going on now that you're concerned about, and let's see. Uh, maybe I can ask you what else I need to know to to, to understand it better. Okay, sure. Uh, now, um, for the second time, it's been about two years that we are separated. Um, um, I'm separated from his dad, so we are living together. So you got back together. He, so you got back together with yes, his father. We went, uh, yes, yes, okay. because so, we asked him to come back. Okay, but just based on how horrible asked, you described things. It just—it's a bit surprising, mm-hmm. but I guess uh, I know it's more complicated than what you've told me so far. But maybe it, there was it, a hope of was, making doctor. things better. Yeah, it—it it was, and our situation was not quite um, normal at the time. And uh, his dad was way better regarding being angry. And okay. I—I have to be honest, he, his anger issues were very, very better, okay. and especially in the beginning when our son came back. But the issues um, started again after a year or so uh, that for him, he just wanted for our, for our son to leave home. Um, I knew that uh, he, our son needs to be more independent. But the thing is, I always thought that he had some issues that he couldn't manage by himself. Now he is living with me. Um, he basically, because of the COVID, he couldn't go to school that he registered. Um, he, he stopped for that course, for that university, because he couldn't continue and we didn't want him to go there. So when he came back to town, he worked in a few places and um, he went to a university here and chose math, which he thought that he could do that, but then he was disappointed that he couldn't, so he stopped that. And now recently, he said that he wants to uh, go and learn something like manual, more manual, like kind of plumbing, that kind of things. Mm-hmm. So he's working towards that. That was basically his de- his decisions. Totally something opposite of what he and ourselves were thinking about because he was very academic and never even touched a screwdriver before. Um, anyways, he's doing this course now for a few months now. He seemed to be happy uh, about the course. and um, But the thing is that I, I still don't know um, how to, um, what is the right thing about um, my behavior with him. He gets really, really angry very fast. Like, if I do something that he doesn't like, if I, like... I go to his room and do something. He he gets really mad, and the madness is it's it's very scary. Um, so that I don't try to you know I don't I I don't want to get um, make him this mad. And uh, the thing is, he is very much addicted addicted to online games and uh, talking to people online. He doesn't have a single friend that he sees. Everyone who he is interacting with them are online. Mm-hmm. Like, um, so it, very it, it seems like, at, yeah, it seems like he's, um, he was facing life and didn't feel good about 
life and so he's escaped into this um a different reality yeah and so with the video games yeah. and talking online but not in person and maybe he doesn't feel great no. about himself so seeing people in person he doesn't feel as good but online he can connect and communicate or even present somehow himself yeah. in a way that feels better so it does seem like he's yeah. afraid to face uh, life and 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 what he experienced yeah. with his father i'm sure hasn't helped and what's gone on it seems like it really crushed him no. to some uh, degree and now his belief in himself might not be there that he can do certain things now i'm only hearing it from you but at least your perspective seems to be that it's not that he wouldn't want to pursue academics but that he felt he couldn't or he was incapable so he's now picked a different route for his career not that it's yeah. actually what you think he wants to do um, the anger and the rage mm -hmm. you're talking about yeah there's going to be a genetic part but also he experienced it with his father being on that side of things so many times that it seems like now you are someone that he thinks he can overpower so he uses that because when we use anger in that way and aggression in that way it's essentially a way of I can get what I want or if someone does something I don't want I can make them do what I want and it seems like you're now that person that he's overpowering so almost he's doing what his father was doing but now to you uh, does it feel the same way the mm -hmm. way he is with you with how his father was um, his father wasn't really angry with me but mainly with him yeah but I mean does it look kind of the same the type of anger or the way he is does it remind you of his father yes, yes. Yeah. I would think so, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So it seems like and, there's um, some way of using that. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the most painful thing that I keep thinking about is, is his dad, before leaving home, he made sure to keep telling him over and over that you are the reason that I'm leaving. Uh, and it's all because of you. So he kept repeating that and even telling him that do do something um, you're a man do something are you a man why don't you do something she she asked me to leave and um, hmm. I don't know I don't know how 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 to say all this but it I I'm sure that this really affected course, him yeah. and he was telling his dad what what do you want me to do? Do you want me to kill her? What do you want me to do? I, I can't do anything. This is between the two of you. And uh, So just so I'm clear, he was saying, why aren't you doing something to your mom? Like to you? Um, no, not not in, in a harmful way. No, I know, but, I, but I'm not sure. I, that yeah, okay. I'm not, I'm not sure if I understand what uh, you meant. Some, yes, I, I feel that he meant that he needs to do something that um, changed my mind that doesn't ask him to leave. Oh, because you were asking his father to leave. Yes, because, uh -huh. yes, okay. because when, when after the first time when we came back home, mm -hmm. I made him promise that I, we will come back home because he is sick in other city and he's coming home and he likes to see us together as a family to 
make him probably feel a little better. But if if it continues, if you do the same behavior and if we can't continue, then I'm not going to leave this time because the first time was really, really hard on both of us. And you're the one who should leave because you're asking us to, to come back to you. And he promised that. So after four years, we tried and it didn't work out. I asked him to... Mm-hmm. to keep his promise and right so you were saying he wasn't happy of course yeah and he was telling your son mm-hmm. why don't you talk you need to you know be a man and tell your mom not to try to kick me out or get rid of me basically yes he was okay. telling our son yeah yeah okay. got it uh, yeah and uh, then he blamed him for yeah uh, for right. for our separation yeah and so i mean i'm i'm sure all of that blaming him also you know talking about him as are you a man or these ways of making him feel small or weak and all of those things amongst all the the rest that you've told me and it seems there's much i i don't know obviously that has affected him um now we're mm-hmm. getting to a commercial break and i want us to continue the conversation understanding also your mm-hmm. relationship with him now because you mentioned something about him getting angry at you it does seem like there's a pretty intense out of control rage there which I'm sure he learned it from his father and experienced a lot of that, so it's in him from that. But also he's not feeling good about himself and his life, so he's more reactive. And often when we're depressed, we think of sadness, but we're also more irritable and more likely to get angry as well. So after the break, I want to talk more, as you said, your own question about how you interact with him and your relationship with him. So I'll put you on hold and we'll talk after the Mm -hmm. break, okay? Sure, thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. Before the break, we're with a caller. Let's go back to them now. Caller, are you still there? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, So you were sharing about your son, who you are concerned about, 23 years old, and uh, the the relationship between him and his father and the back and forth there. But now you've been living with him for a little while and you're worried about him. And we wanted to talk more about your relationship with him and what you can do. Now, clearly... Even you just calling me makes that even more clear, but you are very worried or, and concerned about him, and you are in this difficult place of wanting to have a good relationship with him and for him to feel good, but also I, I can sense you want to push him or encourage him to change what he's doing, and so you could be in between those two things of how do you balance that. Now, I'll let you tell me more about the relationship and, and your yes. questions. Yeah. Yes, basically, Doctor, when, when he is um, going to school, he is at school. But when he is back, the first moment he comes, he just goes to his room and um, barely comes outside just to pick some food and uh, if he likes sometimes he just share with me briefly that this is what happened today like at school and uh, maybe not even for five minutes he he refused to have any longer conversations with me like if if i want to do anything telling him something and he said oh you're too detailed i i don't want to hear all that you say just be succinct mm-hmm. and um, he, 
so basically I don't have much talking to, to him and but I encourage him to talk to me and a little bit he shares about his day or sometimes he says oh, there's nothing that I can tell you this part is okay but he just goes to his room closing the door and I hear him talking to uh, people online or just playing games or sometimes it's just quiet and I feel that he's sleeping and then he said oh I was watching a movie or something and um, he doesn't have any interactions with any real person like a friend or anyone and um, he's really into um, especially before he was really into politics Trump talk about all these uh, the politician and everything he doesn't follow any of these uh, like um singers or whoever the, the young people are doing things nothing never care about what he's wearing or how he would look like to other people when he's done school as fast as he can just i think it's running back home and uh, he doesn't like people to look at him and basically you mentioned that he's, he doesn't want to like like he's hiding and uh, yeah he, um, his room is basically his cave and uh, I don't have many interaction with many people my friends I usually see them outside so it's just very very lonely life ma- mainly for him Mm-hmm. At least I see once in a while some, you know, some friends, but he doesn't. And uh, after his dad left, which is close to two years, they don't have any connections, any communications. Um, as far as I know, his dad sent him two, two text messages, um, like a birthday, so, um, congratulations and something else, but... He never replied to to those texts. The other day, I asked him if if he heard anything from his dad, and he said no. And I said, "Are you okay? Did you miss him?" He said, "No, I'm okay. I don't want to contact him at this at this moment." Like the way he told me, it was just like he's planning to be communicating with him in the future. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't talk about his dad as much. I like him to discuss his feelings. and I like to tell him that he is not guilty, although he was accused of that. Um, but he doesn't give me any chance to to even explain the situation a little bit for him. So, and you I know, feel that he is also... Yes. No, go ahead, go ahead. I feel that he is also blaming me. He, he when he talks about uh, women in general he 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 he's not very <laughs> um, he's not very um, a fan of women just let's put it that way like women are doing this and this and they always want things they always i don't know he doesn't have a very good uh, good thinking about women i feel that um, it it might be my fault that he is thinking this way, and um, I don't know. I don't know if I had a part of it. I sure did. Um, yeah. Well, here's the thing. You know, what, I don't know what. Well, it's. I'm sure we can. You want to look at that, especially because you can possibly change that. Uh, the way you're describing him, he doesn't. 
like people very much in general or his interactions aren't so good. So yes. and, and yes. it could be with women yes. he might have again going back to not measuring up or feeling he can um you know be in a relationship with someone so he's angry at women in a way yeah. for not liking yeah. him, you know. So but he doesn't really unfortunately True. like True. himself. Now he did mention the they always want something from you, which is a narrative you hear, but also that's something you have to look at. He might get the sense you are demanding of him in some way. So there could be something there. Now, when you talk about the conversations, I get it that you want him to hear from you very clearly that he's not to blame, that this is not his fault, and that if he's feeling anything, he can he can share it. What I want you to be aware of is, first of all, to have a conversation, both people have to want it. So if he doesn't want to talk about those things, you can't force him. The other thing is to be aware of, I know it's a very intense topic, these issues, and you worry about him a lot, and and you care about him a lot, and you feel really bad about what he's feeling and what he's going through. But what you have to be aware of is the way you're describing him, and it's the case with a lot of people, that if you create the conversation and it's very intense... Um, Mm -hmm. he's probably going to go away from it. He might go away from it no matter what. But if you start the conversation, you know, telling him it wasn't your fault. I'm so sorry. You know, and it gets very emotional. He's going to just shut down and go away. Mm -hmm. So and and you might even feel more of this need because you barely get to talk to him that when I do, I have to say so much. I can understand that feeling because he doesn't give you a lot of an opportunity. So really quickly, you might want to try to say a lot of things or put a lot of feeling into it. But just be aware that if you want to have a conversation with him, the more you can approach it in a calm way, not very intense, just want to talk about it. If you do want to talk about it, it might make it easier for him. He still might say no every time, but it might make it more likely he can mm-hmm. talk to you. You know, I work with some families or people have called in or talked to people and they say, I, I told my daughter, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. And I started crying and I wanted to tell them. And and it, the daughter might shut down because it's just too much for them to take and they can't say, okay, okay, that's fine. Let's mm-hmm. just stop talking. So just being aware of how you approach him and being more, um, mm-hmm. You know, trying to make it a less emotional conversation, that's important. And also allowing yeah. him the space to tell you, you know, what's going on. And if he doesn't want to tell you, then it's not really a conversation and don't turn it into just telling telling him. Now, looking at your relationship mm-hmm. with him, what do you think if we asked him the things he would complain about you, what would he say? Um. Uh, I know I'm. I don't know, but I know that he's not happy that um, I asked his dad to leave. He's not happy, although they didn't have any relationship together, like mm-hmm. nothing. Even um, he told my sister. My sister um, after after years they meet each other, and my sister briefly asked him how how is everything and what do you think, and he said. Um, I wish I wish they they did what they did after I left home. Hmm. That's um, I I didn't want to be involved in this. So that's what I know that he is not happy with me. And I ask him several times, "Are you angry with me because of your dad left?" And he said yes. Hmm. And I and I ask him why you didn't have any relationship together. Why do you think? that he should should have stayed. You saw that it didn't work. 
like it was really, really toxic environment yeah. at home when the, the three of us lived together. Yeah, and, so, uh, you know, that's, uh, obviously this is more than a little bit complicated, but when he's getting angry with you, first of all, I mean, he, there could be real reasons. I don't know the details. I'm only hearing it from your side. So you have to be open to hearing mm-hmm. what he's saying. Not to focus on blame, but to focus on understanding and showing him you care about how he feels. So maybe he does blame mm-hmm. you for some of the issues between him and his dad and you and his dad. Um, but another thing that often comes up in these types of scenarios is he's very unhappy about what's happened. And his dad yeah. is saying it's his fault and about you and his dad, but also about him and his dad. He probably got that from him that he's the problem, not his dad. And so it could be easier for him to blame you than to be able to blame himself. Not that that's necessarily healthier or as accurate. So you're going to get some of his anger because of that. And the other reason you're going to get his anger is that he can't express his anger to his father because he doesn't have a relationship with him. So when Mm -hmm. he thinks of all the pain from childhood and his life up until this point, you're really the only person that he can dump it on. And so it's a pretty uh, lousy prize to get from being the one that's still around but that's part of what's going to happen is he's going to dump it all on you because his dad's not there for him to share it with. Plus, it seems like you're an easier, he, he's probably more afraid of his dad even when he was there. And so you would be an easier person for him to get angry with. So I'm not saying he's right. And I'm not saying this is all of his anger is just this exaggerated sense that he has towards his father he's putting on you or deflecting his own blame in the situation, but just being aware of that. And so if he does share something like that, as hard as it can be, um, try your best not to defend yourself, at least at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So eventually you mm-hmm. probably can, not just to defend yourself, but to help him understand and to explain what happened. But at first try to understand when he says You're, it was your fault, if you can hold on to that and just let him know, okay, well, tell me what you wish I did or tell me what you didn't like that I did I know this has been hard on you and so give him the space to explain more but if you become defensive then it's going to turn into an argument so uh, we want to try to focus Mm -hmm. on his pain more than what the result is especially at the beginning because if he shares with you more and more then you'll even have more of a chance to explain this is what was happening. And actually, if you talk about his pain and apologize, more than likely he eventually will also say, well, yeah, you know, I know dad was really difficult or, you know, that was, you know, he won't just say it was all your fault uh, at the end. But initially he might start there. So try your best to at least resist that initial reaction, which everyone is going to have to try to defend themselves and focus more on his pain and what he's saying he's upset about. It could allow for a more... Uh, a deeper conversation to come up but it seems like he's not giving you much to deal with and if he comes at you in a very angry way as I was saying it's a very natural reaction to then to defend yourself when he's attacking you and especially saying you did something really bad and it's all your fault or whatever he does say so those are just some thoughts on that part of of things mm-hmm. now another uh, issue you mentioned about going to his room and I didn't know what you meant by that that he gets upset about those kinds of things because I wanted to see I could imagine you and him having a type of relationship where you 
maybe will worry too much about him. So you could get too involved with things. So I don't know if that was an example of that. But tell me about that. When you say you go to his room and he gets upset, you mean he's doing something in his room and you open the door and go in or you knock on the door? No, or... no, 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 doctor. Okay. I, I never, when he's there, I always knock and I don't go inside. I ask him to come outside. And in his room, it's like um, it's like a um, hoarder's home. Like in in her in his room, there is no space for two people. Like he, mm-hmm. it's not a small room, but he keeps everything. Like he he um, if he orders stuff and the the boxes that he emptied them few years ago they're still there yeah like empty boxes so and then when um, so go, going yeah. to his do you go to his room when he's not there that's that's what i did yes okay. just just cleaned up a little bit. right but those are the things i mean he might not like he might not like that because you're going into his space yes yes so that, that and that's what i was one um, of the argument yeah. that i right so that's what i thought i was thinking that's what you meant that you went to his room when he wasn't there, and uh, that's why I wanted to clarify. Yeah. And so, you know, you feel like, well, I'm just going to help. And as you're saying, it's in a really bad condition. But you have to understand that for him, that's you going into his space physically, and he's not going to like that. And so he's getting upset. And so this is what I meant that I could see that you might want to do so much to help him or you might want to get involved, but that it could happen in ways mm-hmm. that he doesn't like and it actually can harm your relationship with him rather than. Uh, help him or help your relationship with him. So listen to him when he says these things, you know, so like, I don't like you going to my room. You have to hear him and don't focus on, oh, well, it's so dirty or I just wanted to clean up or these boxes are old or anything like that. Try to understand what he's upset about is that you're in my space and, and you did it without me knowing or whatever it was that happened. Doctor, his room is something that's, it's, I don't. I'm I don't think his room very, is clean. Very... I don't think his room is clean. I'm just saying, and this is. But you're doing it now here with me of defending what he's doing or what what you're doing. So, mm-hmm. I want you to recognize if we mm-hmm. want to, you know, get closer to him, we have to hear him in what he's saying and not just say, uh, you know, it wasn't right what he's saying. What I did was right. Me, okay, maybe you're, I'm sorry. I, it was not right for me to come to your room without your permission or, and do something you didn't want. <laughs> you know, okay. so we have to show him. And, and so with yeah. other things, too, even when it comes to his father and family things, um, we, we want to make sure we show him that we want to understand where he's coming from, not just show him that we weren't wrong. And I think it's it's hard to <laughs> sit with that when he blames you. I can understand that. But at least initially give him some space and then you can try to explain it more with him or have him you know, hear your side of things as well. But we need to help him open up. And it does sound like he's very depressed and Mm -hmm. not happy with his life. And I'm sure it's hard for you to see him in that condition. You know, his room is maybe a reflection of how you think he's feeling or he's doing in general. And so it's probably hard for you to see him um, like that. But we have to help him find his strength again because it seems like he's... uh, He's lost that belief in himself that he can do something in his career, at least from what you're saying, academically, and also even socially or romantically, it seems like he has um, 
given up on himself or he doesn't believe in himself. So it's turned into this anger and resentment towards towards everyone. And, and you're the person that's around. So yes, you're getting he, 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 com- he completely gave up. He, <clears throat> he thinks that he, he doesn't look a specific way. So no one would, no girls would like him, which is not true. Um, and um, he, he said, oh, okay, I will, I will leave. Even if I leave home, I will live my life the same way that I'm doing now. When I come from outside, I will just play and play. Like sometimes he just sits behind the computer. He doesn't eat. Mm-hmm. He doesn't take a shower. He's yeah. just... I mean, he sounds like he's you know depressed and he's... And I mean, that's what he's saying now. So when he says, I'm always going to do this or... I wouldn't fight him on that to push him away from that. Based on how he's feeling, that's how he feels. And unfortunately, he's gotten to this comfort zone of just doing that kind of life. He's not happy, but he's comfortable. And it's he doesn't really believe in himself that if he pushes himself, it's going to be different. So he's like, what, what's the point? If I can't go to school and be successful, why should I go? If I can't you know, have friends and be happy with them, why don't? I, what, what's the point? I'll just stay home and talk to people online to get something. Um, so he's resigning in his life, unfortunately, it sounds like, because he doesn't think he can do something better. So if I told you, go climb... Uh, a wall tomorrow you're not going to go try because you don't think you can do it so you'll just sit there his wall are things that he actually can climb but he thinks he can't so he does seem depressed and it's hard to help someone when they're depressed but they're also defensive Um, as is often Mm -hmm. the case with parents I talk about try your best to create a better relationship with him when you're in this situation with someone like what he's going through you can focus so much on he has to go to school or work or we have to change him And that usually gets in the way of you actually having a good relationship with him. So if you do spend time with him, Mm -hmm. whatever even small amounts that is, don't just focus on changing what he's doing or, okay, he needs to do this, he needs Mm -hmm. to do that. Sometimes just try to enjoy some time with him. Try to be with him because you need to have a better relationship with him, not just change what's happening around him. But it's a very difficult situation. Mm -hmm. Also, no, there's no solution that if you do this, he's going to change tomorrow. He has to obviously want to do yeah. and make the change more than anyone. And that's why even more, I would say, focus on your relationship with him. But it's very difficult. But hopefully mm-hmm. some of the mm-hmm. things I mentioned, I hope they can be helpful. But even if they are, I know it's going to be yeah. a process. So um, wishing the best to you and also mm-hmm. to him um, going forward. But thank you for your call. Thank you so much, Doctor. I appreciate your help My and pleasure. advice. Thank you. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So to end the show, I wanted to uh, follow up on some of the themes that came up with the previous caller, or one bigger theme in general when we try to help someone else or when we care a lot about someone and we don't know what can we do. And oftentimes the calls I get on the show can be related to that a concerned parent or family member worried about someone and so wanted to talk about two aspects of that Um, first of all actually before I even get to these two things of course we care about our loved ones we want them to be happy to be successful be uh, you know living a good life have all the things that we think of in a positive way and if they're not those things hurt us if you care about someone and they are sad or upset or hurt of course, you're going to 
feel bad about that and that's going to affect you. That is quite natural, but it's what we do with it, how much we get affected by it and what we do with it that matters. So one aspect we have to think about first is when we're trying to help someone else is am I in any way avoiding things in my own life? Now, it's not a black and white thing because your own life is never going to be perfect. So we can't say you have to fix everything in your life before you can even think of helping someone else or getting involved with someone else's life. Or this argument comes up in other areas of life, let's say trying to change the world or taking some kind of social action or working towards social justice. Um, we can't think we have to be perfect and then we can go out into the world. That will never happen. But at times we can use thinking of others, whether it's an individual other, a family member or a partner or the world at large as a way of avoiding and neglecting ourselves and our own needs or not wanting to face something in our own life. And so we can choose looking at other people's lives and their problems, which can be a lot easier in a way, easier in the sense that we don't have to face ourselves. So it's more comfortable. So ask yourself about that. Am I avoiding anything or neglecting anything in my own life or using this other person as a distraction? Because for many people, that can be an easier way of, of dealing with things or dealing with life to use other people's uh, experiences as a reaction or a, a distraction, sorry. So that's one thing to be aware of. The other thing is we have to realize how limited our impact can be when it comes to changing someone else's life, even an aspect of their life, what they're going through, their mental health, and that for anything to get better in their life or really for it to get much better and to change, they're going to have to do almost all of the work we can be a support. We can be, of course, a source of comfort, of connection. Sometimes they might want some advice and guidance, but really to do the work, they're going to have to do it. So if you have, let's say, a student who's struggling, you can give them some support, but you can't do the work for them. You can't study for them, write their papers for them and all of that. You can help um, encourage them. You can help tutor them. You can do some things to, to help them in between studying that might help. But really, your your role is more supportive than actually taking control of things. But sometimes people want to do that. They want to take control of someone's life and they think I'm going to fix it for them. And this um, has relevance to the concept of codependency, where people can get preoccupied with others and someone else's problem and become fixated on fixing the problem. And in some strange way, actually, because the problem gives them something to live for or to do in their life, they're actually wanting the problem to continue in an unconscious type of a way. So we can see this sometimes happen in relationships between someone who has an addiction and their loved ones, but there can be a codependent relationship. It can happen not just with addiction, but in other areas as well and to different degrees. So sometimes we want to take control of their life or we get preoccupied or that becomes our focus related to what I was saying before. We use it as a distraction. And so we have to recognize that this doesn't work. We can't get someone to the mountaintop, whatever that is for them, by carrying them. They're going to have to walk themselves. Maybe you can show them the path. Maybe you can support them, encourage them, or even help them see that they can get there. But you can't carry them up to that mountaintop. And so this is why you've probably heard me discuss this before, often with parents, as I did today, to also make sure you focus on your relationship with your loved one, especially if you're a parent. You can't control what your child 
does or doesn't do. You can have very limited, even when they're little, but especially as they get older and they become adults. What you do have a much bigger impact on is your relationship with your child. And so you can try to um, stay close with them, have a loving relationship with them. You are at least, let's say, 50% responsible for the relationship. And so I would say to put a lot of your effort and energy there. Now, not to do this to get to this result I'm going to describe, but if you focus on your relationship and create a better relationship, you actually now can have even a bigger impact in their life. So don't fake a relationship to then get to this change that is the only thing you're thinking about, but it is the reality that when you consider people we allow to influence us is people that we feel good about. Or if we think about whose advice you're going to take, it's not just anybody's advice or because it's good advice. It's people that we, one, trust in some way. We have trust their advice, that they have good advice. But also the relationship is important. Do I feel like this person has my best interests in heart? Do I feel like this person really understands me and gets me and wants me to do what's best for me, not what's best for them? All of these factors play a huge role in whether or not we will hear someone's advice. So often parents will tell me, I told my kid to do this and this and this, and it's really so good. It's such good advice, but he or she will not listen to me. And they get so frustrated. And we have to recognize that advice is not being taken or not taken most of the time because it's good or bad advice. It's much more about who's saying it, how they say it, the relationship, and a bunch of other factors. So don't just think if I yell good advice to my child, I'm helping them. You need to focus on the relationship. And then within a relationship, there can be a lot more space to give advice, to give support and share different things. So if you don't have a good relationship with someone, you really can't help them much anyway. And we can recognize that pretty uh, intuitively, or it's kind of reactionary. Of course, well, if I don't know someone, I can't help them. If I'm not close to someone, I can't help them. But even if you're living in the same home with someone, if you don't have a close relationship, there's very little you can do to help them. So often I'll encourage parents to focus on their relationship more than the goal of, I have to get my kid to, whether it's stop smoking weed, to do better in school, to get out of the house, whatever it is that we think of as this goal, when we get preoccupied with that goal, we tend to stop seeing the person and relating to them as a full human being. And that's going to have a huge negative impact on your relationship. And also you're likely not going to see any effects in what you're trying to help them with either. So first of all, we want to look at ourselves and make sure, am I distracting myself from my own life by focusing so much on someone else's problem, at least to a degree and to recognize that more. But then secondly, when we care about someone, rather than just focusing on helping them with the thing, whatever that thing is, focus more on the relationship, which is much more in your control, much more something you can have a big impact on, and also can lead to you helping them more in the long run. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. As always, a big thank you to Ghazali here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. Have a wonderful day. Ninety-four-seven KTWV HD3 Los Angeles.